In John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist sums up the Christian life with his statement. He says this, he must become greater, I must become less. That is basically the mission statement of the Christian. Every day, God becoming greater, me becoming less. God's will becoming greater, my will becoming less. And that's flip-flop the way a lot of us like to live. We want to increase ourselves, want to increase our wealth, want to increase our possessions, want to increase our name, our reputation. Um, but the opposite is what God wants for us, for him to become greater in our lives and us to become less. And so we're going to look at what that looks like today. And that sometimes causes life to take a very radical turn with God becoming greater and us becoming less. Um, I want to take you to what I believe is the most uh, amazing moment in Scripture. And there are a lot of amazing moments, like Moses parting the Red Sea, or uh, um, Jesus raising ladders from the dead, or the resurrection of the dead, the feeding of the 5,000, lots and lots and lots of miraculous moments in Scripture. But this one, I believe, is the key. It's Jesus' baptism. Because only this is the only time in Scripture, you guys, where all three parts of the Trinity are there together. Um, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Only time in Scripture, every, uh, all three appear simultaneously. And had you been there, you would have fallen face down in worship. Look what it says here, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, this is what is known as a mountaintop experience. And this is the one that the church really pumps up as really significant. Uh, you know, you go to a great worship service, or you go to camp, or you go to CIY, or you go on a mission trip, and you have this amazing just kind of mountaintop experience. And, and that is what the church kind of pumps up as this is the goal. This is it right here. This is you've arrived when you have a mountaintop experience. And it describes Jesus after his baptism in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. It said, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, in the, led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, this is one of the times when our English Bible lets us down. It says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert. That's actually not a good uh, translation. The original Greek translation is more pushy. It's, it, it says basically drove Jesus into the desert, pushed him. You get the, um, get the sense that Jesus didn't necessarily want to go. This wasn't something that he did voluntarily. It's like it was pushed there. And it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit after his baptism. But he went to the desert immediately after the mountaintop experience. And here in the desert, Jesus fasted. He fasted for 40 days. He suffered. He was tempted uh, by the devil three times. Um, and so he, he, it, it, the desert was this time of, of just questioning, suffering, uh, uh, um, uh, unsure of what's going on. We get, we get the, the, the sense there with Jesus. And so it's, it says this, he ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was very hungry. And after withstanding the temptation and after dealing with the doubts and, the, and, and the, the exhaustion and everything like that, after defeating Satan's temptations, look how it describes him after the desert. Uh, Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit. Now, what was he after his baptism? After the mountaintop, he was 
full of the Holy Spirit, but it was only after the desert that he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that that is God's plan for each one of us, not to just be full of the Holy Spirit, but to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot of us do not live powerful lives. We just don't. And a lot of times it's because we have not learned the lessons from the desert. We have not embraced and fully reckoned on the part of suffering and questioning in the Christian life. And so when God drives you to the desert, it's for a reason. It's for a very, very powerful, strong reason because he wants you, like Jesus, to live life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, well, why does he have to do that for us to, uh, uh, to, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit? Why can't we just learn that here in church? Why can't we just learn that, you know, listening to some great worship music? Well, the problem is, is that you only, there, there, there are things you can only learn in the desert. The first thing is this, uh, this world is not our home. So don't get too comfortable here. You, you don't learn that sitting in a church. You don't learn that in a book. You don't learn that even reading scripture. You only learn that when you have been through suffering. C.S. Lewis writes this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, I find my, in myself a desire for, for justice, for, for, things to, for good things to happen to good people and, and bad things to happen to bad people and for people to experience the consequences of their actions. A thief uh, that steals something should get caught and do the time. Uh, the, these types of things, well, we all know that many times those things don't happen. We know that, that people that don't deserve to be hurt at all get hurt. We know that people that deserve to be thrown in, in jail for life get off scot-free. We know that. And we, thought we have this desire for this, which means that we are probably made for another world. See, if we don't ever suffer, if we don't ever have the, the rug pulled out from under us, if we don't ever have the questions and, and, and think life not work out for us, we may buy the delusion that we are supposed to be here, that this world is our home. And the presence of suffering destroys that. Uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes this to people undergoing persecution. He says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Well, I wonder if that really happens to a lot of Christians. Do, do non-Christians come up to you and say, hey, hey, you know, why, why do you have all this hope? What are you hoping in? If that doesn't happen for you, maybe it's that the world sees you hoping in the same things it's hoping in. Instead of hoping in the cross, instead of hoping in the power of God, instead of hoping in your faith, they just see you hoping in the same things that they're hoping in. They're letting them down. Okay, a lot of us have gotten far too comfortable in this world we were never supposed to get comfortable in. And the desert shows us the fallacy of that. Uh, the second thing that, that we learn in the desert that we don't learn anywhere else that is this. Number two, desert experiences teach us tenacity, perseverance, and courage. 
Tenacity, perseverance, and courage, all three are, are, are almost non-existent in the lives of a lot of people who call themselves Christians. It's because the desert has, we, we have not learned the lessons from the desert, from the struggle, from suffering. Look what, first, uh, look what James 1, 2 through 4 says. It says, it's consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, how many of us, if we were honest today, those of us in person and online, how many of us would really consider it pure joy when life falls apart? That, that oh God, this is the most joyful thing I've ever experienced. This is it. You have blessed me so much. My, my, I lost my job. Um, my, my good friend is in the hospital, probably not going to make it. Uh, a friend of mine got diagnosed with cancer. Uh, we got hit with all kinds of bills. We don't know how we're going to pay for this. My kids are in open rebellion. Yes, this is pure joy. How many of us would be like that today? Not many. Not many yet. The Bible tells us that when we face trials of many kinds, we are to consider it joy. Because God is doing something in us that we have no, we had no idea what it's going to be like. But He is developing us, He is maturing us, and He is making us ready for this thing called life. That's what we're, that's what's going on. Every time you experience something bad, and those of us that have been through the desert and been to the testing ground and, and have suffered on the other side of that, you know the lessons that you learned. You know that you are much stronger in your faith with much more trust in God than you ever would have had before because perseverance makes you mature and complete. And that is God's goal for every person in this room and online to be mature and complete. All right? This isn't something that I learned in a classroom or or in a, in a church, in a sermon. I learned this firsthand. Uh, back in 2004, um, my wife and I, uh, on, on her birthday, January 5th, 2004, we found out that we were expecting our third child. Um, now, we had been very, very, very important. We, don't, we only wanted two kids. We were, we were done. We were being very, very careful. Um, and so we could only surmise that this child was a special gift from God um, because we were not trying and, 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 and everything. And as we watched uh, uh, Rachel begin to show uh, and we got towards our 20-week ultrasound, uh, we were very, very excited to see what God was going to do. And we were living in Nashville at the time when, when I remember packing up everybody in the car, uh, our, our two daughters who were, who were little at that time, uh, and driving down to Vanderbilt Medical uh, hospital to, to see. And this time we're going to find out if it was a boy or a girl and, and telling our little girls whether or not brother and sister. It's just real exciting. And as uh, the, the ultrasound tech was moving around and I got to see a um, little, uh, little fellow there. Turns out it was a boy, our first son. Um, these things take about 20 minutes, I guess. And, uh, and 20 minutes came and 25 minutes and 30 minutes and and, and I'm not a medical person, but I kind of know the signs when something's not right because, you know, a nurse would run in and whisper and run out, and then a tech would run in and whisper and run out, and, 
and it got to be 30 minutes and 35 minutes and 40 minutes, and the girls were getting a little restless, so I, I, I got them by the hand. I was going to take them out and, and let them walk around a little bit, and as I was leaving the door, uh, leaving the room, the doctor met me, and he goes, no, you want to come back in, and you need to sit down, and I was like, okay, that's not, not good, so I sat down, and the doc said, um, well, we've, we found a problem. And uh, your, your, uh, your son has hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And I said, well, I have no idea what that is. And he said, basically, he's got a three-chamber heart. His left ventricle is not developing, and it won't develop, and it's 100% fatal without surgery. Um, we were sent to an, a high-risk OB, OBGYN, and um, they confirmed the diagnosis and that day, I found out exactly how pro-life I am. I, I knew that I was, but when the doctor said many parents, if not most parents, when they get this diagnosis, choose to abort, the visceral reaction within me, uh, the, 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 um, the thought of someone telling me to end the life of my child, um, I, I found out how pro-life I was that day. Let's just leave it at that. Um, I remember driving home just kind of in a, in a daze. We never had anything happen like this before, and, and we never faced anything like this. I was 30 years old, and when we went to celebrate, we were coming home basically devastated. I, I called my parents and, and just through tears told them what was going on. And, um, and the next four or five months were just kind of a, I, I, was, I was in a daze. I was in youth ministry at the time. And if you've never understood what a, a hypocrite is, try uh, watching a youth minister trying to lead kids to trust in God when he wasn't trusting God himself. I, 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 was, I was telling the kids for the next uh, five months that you can trust God and God's, God's power is present and, and he answers prayer. And, and we were praying and praying. We saw no, dip, no change in our son. And so I just kind of bumbled through the next several months, and then it came time for uh, our, our son to be born. Um, he, was, he was born on September 5th, 2004. His name is Jacob Benjamin Kibler, and um, he was eight pounds, nine ounces. We were told that the, uh, if, if the baby was more than eight pounds, the chance of survival went way up. So we were very, very, very optimistic and very excited uh, he, he looked perfect, No, didn't look like he had any birth defects or, or anything, and, uh, and so and he was in the NICU, and, and from the time that he was in the NICU, he did not do well. Um, he had to have the surgery within a, a, a few days, um, just, just because of, of the way that things were going, and every time they went in, they were about to do surgery, he, he would spike a temperature, and, and, uh, and, and so we can't do the surgery anymore, and Rachel and I look back that now and realize that God was giving us more time with him. Um, as as um, the day progressed to September 14th, he had surgery. He was, had open heart surgery. It was about seven hours long. And watching my son just go back to surgery was really was very difficult. We had a lot of confidence, a lot of optimism about the outcome. And 
the seven-hour wait there was, was pretty rough, but uh, after about seven hours, the, the, the surgeon came out and said, uh, everything went well. We're just waiting for the heart to restart. Um, he's on the bypass machine right now on life support. Um, and so uh, we're just going to wait for that. It should, be, should, be, should restart in the next few hours. And hour one, hour two, hour three, hour four went on. And the heart didn't restart. About one o'clock in the morning on September 15th, they came and woke us up and, <clears throat> and, and told us that they were going to uh, uh, give some epinephrine, some adrenaline to, to hope, hopefully restart the heart. And uh, we, we, we gave the consent for that and tried that. That didn't work. And about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, they... They came in and, and said, we're, we're having trouble, he's, he's, he's bleeding, we can't get the bleeding stopped, we're, we're working on that right now. About five in the morning, they came in and said, we're going to try the, the shock paddles to try to get the heart restarted. Um, so we signed off on that. And at about 7 a.m., the pediatric cardiologist called us into the room. And he looked at us and he said, um, I've got bad news. And, and my, my heart just sank. And, and he, said, uh, he said, his heart is dead. It's not, not restarting. It's not going to restart. His heart's dead. And he immediately said, we can put him on a heart transplant list. And, 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 and at that time, I just kind of zoned out. And I looked at my son who was laying there on the on the operating table, to basically barely see him under the wires and the tubes and the monitors. There was a, there was a big hole in his chest right here where they, had, where they had gone in, and there's just a dressing over it. And I, I, I held out my hand to the doctor and I said, none of that will be necessary. Our son has been through enough. We're just going to let him go. And the, the, the cardiologist looked at us and said, are you sure? And my wife and I looked at each other and we said, if we did anything else, it would be for us. But this is what's best for him. And so we called in the family that day. It was a beautiful Wednesday, September 15, 2004. Family came down from... Lexington and from around and we gathered in his room and we we prayed and we cried and we sang songs and and people said what they needed to say uh, to him and when everything had been said and everything had been done and and every tear had been cried we my wife and I just sent out everybody and we had a few moments with our son and I was uh we, we hugged him, we kissed him and everything, and I was, I was holding him in a rocking chair. With, with the, he was on the bypass machine. And after we had done and said everything that we could say, prayed for him and told him we loved him and kissed him more times than we could think, I looked at the, uh, the life support tech and I said, well, what do I do? 
And he said, well, just walk over here and place them on the table and I'll turn the machine off. And I, I would say it was about 10 feet, about a 10-foot walk over to the table. And um, those of you that have ever worked out and you've, you've uh, lifted weights, you, you know what, it, what lifting to failure means. It, it means that you can't lift the weight one more time if your life depended on it. You are at complete muscle failure. And I, I, I stood up and I felt like that in my legs. I was like, I cannot make this 10-foot walk. I don't have the strength to do it. And at that moment, I kid you not, I felt an invisible arm around my shoulders. I really did. It, it was kind of like, I don't know, those war movies where, where uh, a, a guy is wounded and his buddy comes and puts his arm around him or, or puts him up on his shoulders and, and says, let's do this. And I, I felt the invisible hand of the Lord around me. And he said, let's walk this together. And so, carrying my son, I, I, I walked across the room and placed them on the table, and the life support tech just turned, them, turned the machine off and uh, watched my son die. And as we left the hospital and drove home, some thoughts were going through my mind. I, 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 at that moment, you guys, we were going home. Did it matter what size house we were going back to? Did, did it matter what kind of car I was driving? <clears throat> did it matter how many dollars were in my bank account? At that moment, <clears throat> where God just revealed, just ripped, apart, ripped the curtain about everything that I thought was so important in this world, God showed me in that instant the just absolute waste that stuff was. And the only thing that was real, and that drive back, it wasn't everything that this world screams is so important. The only thing that was real was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the only thing that made any sense in that moment. When God forced my wife and I to the desert, and when he forced us to, in, into the suffering and into the place where we question and we hurt, the, we realized that everything that people chase in this world were just nothing. It was just monopoly money, all of it. And the only thing that was real and that mattered was the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that there was an answer for my son's death in 2004. He was only 10 days old. But the resurrection of Christ made it made sense. And in that instant, I resolved to spend the rest of my life telling as many people as I can, as many ways that I can about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm, I, I was going to put away the demands of this world, the things that, that advertisers and, and peer pressure and media screams are so important. You need to give your life to this. I was going to preach to my church, to everyone that will listen, that it's all monopoly money. It's worthless. And you don't learn that anywhere else except the desert. And I remember walking into my house, and the family was there, and they were watching the, the show Extreme Makeover. And this, this person 
on the, on the TV was just giddy about her new plastic surgery. I just wanted to yell at the TV. Don't you understand? None of that matters. It doesn't. The only thing that's real, the only thing that matters is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you all, that is the lesson from the desert. That is the lesson from suffering. That is why we consider it pure joy when we face trials of every kind because God burns away all the garbage that we think is so important. He shows us what is of ultimate worth and value, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all suffering makes sense. All suffering comes to an end, and there is joy, everlasting joy, everlasting joy on the other side of it. So if you're in the desert right now, persevere. There is joy on the other side. That's what we've found, and that is the truth. That is God's message for all of us today. God bless you. Keep persevering and don't quit.